I remember like pausing it and just kind of turning to my wife and being like, this is such a Dungeons and Dragons moment. You <laughs> exactly. know, like, like you're like, in fact, there's a reading that I enjoyed doing of this, of this entire movie of just being like, this is a dungeon master really trying to get Gowan to do like a pretty, pretty normal D and D game. And when he's just like, okay, so, um, you know, you could be a knight of the round table. Do you want to do that? And it's like, no, I'm going to go back to that brothel. <laughs> like, you are not following the, the, the options that I'm giving you. And then, okay, so there's this skull. I'm like, what do I get? What's the, What gold yeah. is in it? What is this What does this spirit offer me in return? <laughs> Come on, just, just play the game. Stop being a jerk. You're supposed <laughs> to be a hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to episode 211 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss David Lowry's 2021 film, The Green Knight, as well as the late 14th century poem it's based on. And joining us in the Green Chapel to play a Christmas game this week, we'd like to welcome author Eric Grove, whose short fiction can be found in volume 7 of The Buckman Journal, volumes 2 and 3 of Space Cocaine, as well as the Escape Pod podcast, uh, which I believe your episode is coming out on the very same day, dear listener, that you are listening to this. So, uh, you know, after this is over, if you if you like what Eric says, maybe go check out his story. Uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Thanks for joining us. What an exciting project in a, such a festive time that we're going to be covering it as well. <laughs> nothing, nothing says Christmas more than decapitations. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it's funny because I... I didn't know if this was really going to be a good fit, but damn if it wasn't a little bit Christmassy, you know, like it it, it, it takes place around Christmas. There's a, a whole year goes by and we get Christmas again. I think there was even some bells involved, which are, you know, reminiscent. Um, we do want to say happy holidays to everyone who listens. Uh, I hope you and yours are all doing well. Um, we on our on this podcast celebrate Christmas, but, you know, it's more of a pagan kind of Christ free version of the of the holiday. Um, but, you know, we welcome all sorts and, and whatever you celebrate, just you know, into the year, winter solstice type stuff. And hopefully you can enjoy this one and, and have a nice beverage and uh, have a little into the year cheer. We are, in fact, I think, recording on the longest night of the year right now. So that's right. I think we are we are properly on theme, guys. It's very appropriate. <laughs> There's a whole debate, by the way, about whether or not this is like a very pro-Christian poem or a subtly uh, critical of Christianity poem. Um, and there's a lot of debate among scholars about that. Well, I mean, personally, I found the exercise of, of covering the story to be really interesting because I had already seen the film. And, you know, I think like a lot most walking out, unless you're very well versed in Arthurian le legends, like sort of it left me confused it left me like sort of searching <laughs> yeah. for answers searching for like what the, the the meanings behind the film could be and i loved that it was so layered that i knew that i could dig into that and i did you know i did research very soon after to sort of like 
put the pieces together a little more. And I, I enjoyed it so much on my on, on my viewing, but just knowing sort of get, getting the backstory and the source material and then on a second viewing, it's just, it's so much better. And like, it was already one of my favorite movies of the year. Now, like I think this viewing and the source material and really digging into it um, for the research for this podcast, I just, I love this movie and I, I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. You know, I, I missed it when it came out in theaters. Uh, I held off because I started thinking maybe this would be a, a Christmas project for us and uh, I, I finally got to see it. Um, I was very excited when I saw the trailers uh, earlier. And um, I, yeah, I'm just really glad that I finally got to this one. Um, I, I do want to go over everybody's sort of experience and history with the project. Um, but before I do, just real quick on a somewhat personal note, um, if everyone listening could spare a moment of positive vibes, energy, thoughts, prayers, uh, if that's something you believe in. Uh, or what have you, for the Elliott family, my family, um, I would much appreciate it. Uh, I don't want to go into any specifics, but we could we could use them right now, and I'm not the praying type, but uh, I am agnostic, and uh, agnostic enough to welcome any sort of positive energy we can, we can get, so uh, thanks everybody. If you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. All right, Eric, uh, <laughs> on that note, how about you tell us, did you see this movie when it came out? I did not. Uh, I wanted to. I um, it was. I think my wife's comment was, "If there's anything that's going to get us to go back to the movie theater, it might be this movie." Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, as it as it turned out, right when it came out, I I was just particularly busy, and so I didn't make it to the theater. Um, and then movie release windows got kind of weird, and I kind of figured I yeah. might as well wait, and it'll be it'll be available for streaming. And um, so I did. I did miss the opportunity to see it in the theater. I kind of I kind of regret that. Uh, I feel like the experience may have been more immersive, though. I I don't know. Like a lot of theatrical viewings have that extra layer of anxiety with uh, with with this year and, and with COVID. So at least yeah. seeing it at home, I was able to relax and especially uh, it would have been you know I, I, we watched it and then we immediately started watching it a second time. Like my wife and I, <laughs> oh, wow. we, we watched it together. We took a, like a short break. We talked about it for about 20 or 30 minutes. And then we started the thing immediately right at, right then uh, wow. and, and started watching it again, uh, which I, I don't think I've ever done with a, with a movie um, with such a short window. You know, what that reminds me of is the experience of reading a really good poem. Um, and I think it's interesting that this is a film based on a poem. Because I don't know that we've done much of that, James, on this podcast. Um, and generally, poems don't get adapted into movies very much. Now, this is like an epic, very long-form poem. But it's it's definitely a poem. And we'll get into the nitty-gritties of some of the verse and, and some of that stuff. I, I, I want to at least touch on that for the poetry nerds out there. The little bit I know. Um, but one of the things that I have always found about poetry is that the first read is just like a, it's like a, it's a surface level. It's almost like deciding, do I want to read this poem? Let me read it once to decide if I want to read it. And then you have to like circle back, go through a second time, go through a third time and mm -hmm. really dig into it and start to understand all the deeper levels of what's going on. And damn it if David Lowry didn't make a movie like that, because this yeah. movie on first watch is, is kind of confusing and bewildering and off-putting to some. And if you look at some of the like ratings and stuff I was looking at online, like I think audiences were very mixed. Um, and it totally makes sense because this movie is is a very unusual, surreal, sort of bizarre experience that uh, 
if you are the kind of person who wants to watch a movie multiple times to try and suss out meaning, uh, you know, then you're going to love it. If you're not that kind of person, you're going to be like, what the fuck did I just watch? And I think a lot of people had that experience. <laughs> I think there's enough there to enjoy a first viewing. Um, but yeah, like you said, I, I love this idea of taking a genre like fantasy that's been well explored in film and giving people something they've never seen before in a, in a sense. And, and you know, I, I know that some people may, you know, it's a weird marketing strategy to, to say like, this is a film you have to see twice. So you're not going to get it the first yeah. time. It's like kind of tough to a tough sell. But at the same time, like, I, you know, I think we all love like films that have that layering that we can watch over and over again that stick with you for, for these moments. And well, and, and I'll go a step further and I, you may disagree with me here, but I think this movie kind of wants you to go read the poem. <laughs> no, I, I mean, like, yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. Because I, re- so I read the poem first. I was like, I'll be the only one on the podcast who will read the poem and then watch the movie. Uh, yeah, the experience of knowing the story going in of the poem really helped. It was like a lens for me to approach the movie where I could kind of understand on first go- on first pass what he was going for. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I can see what he's what he's doing here, David Lowry, I mean. What he's changing, what he's interpreting in a way. And it reminded me of the experience of like, if you ever look at like a surrealist painter, um, sometimes they will base their surreal paintings off of some other piece of art or other like story or biblical verse or something, right? And it hasn't established story yet now it has been seen through this lens of this surrealist uh, artist and that was the feel I got for this movie like it is ostensibly an adaptation and it is an adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight yet it is very different and it's definitely a take and it's definitely its own piece of art that is trying to say something that is similar yet different I mean it's almost a reaction to it in ways like it's it's like subverting for one, it's making it a lot more ambiguous and, and it's allowing the audience to kind of make decisions, but it's also a reaction to fantasy. I think this this story was already, the poem itself was a reaction to a lot of like Arthurian fantasy because it kind of, in the way that like these virtuous knights like always go on these quests and they, they defeat each task along the way and they're like leveling up to the final conclusion where they eventually like best the thing and become a, a legend or a myth. This This story on its own, the poem, takes you through some trials that this this character goes through and whether he succeeds or not he eventually makes it to the end and then and then has this like final confrontation and and you know I think the the movie took that and was like all of these I'm going to I'm going to make each of these encounters that he has each of these tests maybe have him fail along the way and and yeah. like show some more humanity to this character and make it more real in ways and uh, I think just like sp- spinning a fantasy story especially like a a very specific archetypal story and spinning it that way is really interesting. This is an anti-superhero movie in a lot of ways. Like this is this is this felt like a real reaction to uh, blockbuster uh, heroic journeys that we that we typically see. We're seeing a very different kind of approach, uh, and it's not just it seems like fantasy storytelling, but any popular hero-based storytelling is being kind of dissected and explored uh, in, the, in the film. And I, I don't know, I almost 
you know, and, and I think it was done in a loving way, but I kind of feel like David Lowry is having a little bit of an argument with the poem rather than just a discussion. I feel like he has a, has a more direct, you know, he is, he is in some cases not adapting, but subverting, um, some of this stuff. Like he's, he's kind of saying, yeah, what if I took what you were doing and I did, and I used that, but I communicated a very different message. Um, which obviously the great part about the movie is that you can take different messages from it. So, yeah, Mm. I'm really interested on that take when we do get into the spoiler section, because both pieces of art are highly interpretive. And I was reading through, because of course, like I had my own reaction to it, but I was reading through, like, there's all these different readings of the poem and some of them line up more with what I think David Lowry probably got out of it, or at least was, was sort of attempting to do, um, but it depends on how you read it. So, yeah, I mean, like if you read the poem a certain way, um, this very much could be at odds with it. Whereas if you read the poem in other ways, maybe it's more in line. I don't know. Uh, if you can't already tell, it sounds like we all do recommend this movie. Uh, and the caveat being, and, and I don't want to be like pretentious about this. The movie is uh, difficult to grasp what is being attempted as you're watching it. And that's by design especially if you haven't read the poem, um, which most people won't have who watch this. Um, And yet there is a beauty to the movie that I think is undeniable. It's got an incredible score, amazing performances. It's one of those films where everything on screen is extremely deliberate. And if you go in thinking like, why is this happening? That's going to lead you to, I think, the right frame of mind because... Those questions are important. I think that's what you should be asking. And being okay with some ambiguity and not and, and not being comfortable and there not being a, a direct answer in the movie and being like, I kind of have to decide for myself maybe what's going on here or what's what what the filmmaker's trying to say. Um, and, and that can be an unca- uncomfortable position for people. It's not something we experience a lot in movies these days, at least a lot of the ones that like you said, like the big blockbuster ones, but it's the kind of movie that like, I'm really glad exists. Uh, and I think if you're going to try and adapt a poem, like this is the way to do it uh, because it has that feeling of there's just so much richness here and like depth of meaning um, that it's going to reward multiple viewings. So if that sounds cool to you, you're probably someone who would enjoy this movie. If that sounds like a chore to you, Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, it's going to challenge you. It's going to the, the film like is going to challenge you. It's going to ask you to see allegory and small details, try to try to interpret what's being said. And it's going to like send everybody down a different path. So some people may may react harshly to some of the choices that are made and and just think that somebody's doing it for the sake of being shocking or weird or different. But um, yeah, I would like you said, I think I think that everything's done with an intention in this film. And, you know, this is the kind of filmmaking that just like it, it like I walked out of this movie just so inspired. And I was like, this is the kind of shit that like if you get a chance to make a movie, if you're going to direct a film and it's going to be some adaptation of this ancient unknown story, nobody knows who wrote it, uh, you know, like like you put pour your heart and soul into it and make something that people have never seen before like earned those audience members and i think that this movie is one of those situations where like i remember seeing trailers for it and thinking this is going to be a movie that i like and walking out thinking this is like what people should strive for this is what cinema is about it's about like challenging people's 
belief of what film can be in 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 a sense and uh i just yeah. i can't recommend it enough and and but like yeah. luke said it's going to challenge you this this is going in the realm of like art house right. art in general and less entertainment this is an a24 movie right so uh, yeah which again just go through their catalog right if that means something <laughs> to you if me saying an a24 fantasy movie if if you hear that and go like sign me up then then you're gonna love this movie but uh if you go what's a24 uh you might wanna you might wanna think about think about it i guess because yeah. the these are these are movies that uh I thought about it a lot when I when I finished watching it. I thought like, are there people that I would not recommend this to? And the answer is absolutely. There are people absolutely. that I would say like, uh, I love it. Uh, there are people that I would go out of my way. Like I would send a text message in the middle of the night and be like, have you seen Green Knight yet? And then there are people <laughs> who might ask me, hey, did you see Green Knight? And I look at them skeptically and go, why? And then, I, you know, and, and maybe, maybe I'd be like, I don't really want to have the argument that you and I are going to have. <laughs> That's always a tough, a tough conversation to have, right? You're like, you're like, look, we just got to sit down together and maybe uh, talk through this a little more. But, but it takes so much effort on your part. You're like, I don't know if this is worth it at this point. Yeah. And do they even want to have that conversation? Exactly. Exactly. The trailers, I think, while they did signal that this movie is going to be something sort of special and artistic. It also does a really good job of packaging a, a, a hero's journey with a cute fox sidekick that is going to end in a final confrontation with a big bad that I think uh, was going to get butts in seats and was designed to. And I can see people going into theaters knowing nothing about everything else, knowing no, not knowing who A24 is and just going like, oh, this looks like a kind of stylish adventure movie that seems like it'll be fun. And being that person being very disappointed in what they got too, because that that is not what this movie is. I think marketing departments on in production companies are really afraid of movies like this because they're like, yeah. we have to sell something that people can like look at and and like say they want to go see. And to to just like the general population, I think it like has to be tricked into seeing a movie like this, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, you know, it is what it is. I you know, I feel a certain type of way about marketing in films a lot of the time anyway. So Yeah. You know. They got to recoup their their budget, obviously, if possible. Yeah, and their hope is get them in there, and then you know it, maybe half of them will love it, and then you're, it's a win. <laughs> right. We'll trick them in, and then and then like you know don't give them a refund, and they're just like deal <laughs> deal with this art house. We have your money now. <laughs> Take my art house feature. Uh, all right, so I think let's talk a little bit about the poem specifically, absent the movie for a moment at least, and then we'll get into uh, a discussion of both as they compare to each other, but. Uh, Sir Gawain, which I say Gawain, I, sometimes it's Gawain. Um, I've heard it pronounced different ways. I think in the movie they pronounce it different ways. In the beginning, they called him Ga Garwin. I like Ga Gawain. I, that's yeah. easier for me to say. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a late 14th century chivalric romance written in Middle English. The author is unknown. The title was given centuries later. Is one of the best-known Arthurian stories with its plot combining two types of folk motifs, the beheading game and the exchange of winnings. Written in stanzas of alliterative verse, each of which ends in a rhyming bob and wheel. It draws on Welsh, Irish, and English stories as well as the French chivalric tradition. It is an important example of chivalric romance, which typically involves a hero who goes on a quest which tests his prowess. I did notice that it was iambic pentameter, and then it had these weird ending 
moments where it would it would sort of offset with a two with like a single metrical foot and then it would go into these four lines which would be shorter which was written in trimeter um with this like a b a b rhyme scheme um at the end here and these these little things were kind of odd and they were kind of like sometimes they would summarize what came before sometimes they'd be like a commentary on I wasn't really sure what it was, and I wasn't sure if the little the, the like little extra foot was supposed to be kind of part of the previous line, or if it was truly its own line. I didn't know if it was being offset because of the like paperback copy I had, um, but I have found the answers to this in my research. Okay, um, I do want to ask before you just give the answer. Um, as I was reading it, I I I felt like you could just read those sections if you wanted to it seemed like you could go through and just like pull all those out and read it and get most of the story and it was sort of being expanded on in this like narrative structure with with the rest of it it's the kind of i i hadn't really experienced this kind of poetry before and i'm like damn like it it made me wish that i had studied more poetry and and like maybe i'll go seek it out in the future (laughs) yeah it's uh it's kind of unique i think um i don't it's not he didn't Whoever this was, they think it's a man. I was reading some theories about who this was, um, just from the, the some of the discussions of masculinity, and they think they know that this guy was um, of a, like an upper class in a certain area in uh, in England, um, tr- basically tracking his word usage and diction. Um, but yeah, it is unknown who it was. He was anonymous, um, and. Yeah, these uh, speaking of these final lines here, they are sort of summarizing or or some sort of like coy commentary on what came before. This is called the Bob and Wheel, um, and it is set up with the Bob, which is the uh, single metrical foot, which is these. Uh, it's a couple of. It's just a few syllables, right? Uh, two to three usually, and it sets up. It like alerts the reader that you're about to get the wheel. That's the bob. You get that. It's offset. And then you get the wheel, which is the four lines with a very specific rhyme scheme um, that does that. Like we were talking about sort of ironic commentary and or summary of what just came before, Um, which I don't know. Pretty cool. It's not something I was familiar with. And and this is uh, one of the most uh, famous versions of this, although it has been attempted by other poets. This is like one of the most famous uh, occasions of this. Well, I I loved it overall. Um it got me thinking too about how like this is kind of like a hard mode for writing right like poetry oh, is sure, like dude. you're dealing with a narrative in the first place but then you add in the additional difficulty level of making it rhyme making it flow together in a in a rhythmic pattern yeah no meter meter is a nightmare like i i did some of that when i was in my undergrad and it is there is a fun challenge to it but um it also can be maddening, and I think there are times where you'll see like it's hard to it's hard to judge in this because it's was written so long ago. But meter can force sentences into some awkwardness as they try yeah. and as they try and rearrange things to fit the meter, and it's hard to know when that's occurring versus when it's just old English. Um, but if you try and write in meter nowadays. Um, I think the sign of a great poet is when you read it and it doesn't sound like it's being forced into this meter. It feels natural because that's hard to do. And it's, it's, it is a, it is a hard mode of writing. I think you're right on there. So, and speaking of it being sort of an older style of writing, I found myself just not being accustomed to it. I found myself having to go back a few times to reread and, and, you know, really ingest what's being said. In, In addition to the fact that like, there's a lot of like underlying 
allegory and, and other things being given in, in within the text. But over time, I did like nearing the end of the story, I feel like I, it, I fell into the, the rhythm of it. And I felt like I started to really digest it the way that I digest a normal novel. Well, um, so it's been, it's been a minute, but uh, I, I took some medieval lit classes back in back in college for the English major um, and, and took some. I remember taking some classes uh, specifically on some middle middle English stuff. Um, so this was sort of a, a fun throwback for me because it was it was you know bust out my old uh, Norton anthology of, of medieval uh, literature um, and and kind of kind of dust off that skill set. Um, what I did in order to make it so it, it it I mean it is a challenging read. So if you know you go you go watch you know David Lowry's The Green Knight and you think well I bet the poems uh, at least more straightforward. Uh, <laughs> you know I I've got some good news and some bad news for you folks. Uh, <laughs> the 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 thing about um, what I what I did that I think was most successful is um, poetry like this is is really designed to be read out loud. Um, if anything, this is all coming from you know like a spoken oral tradition and the the rhyme and the meter and all of the all of the the vocal stuff that's being peppered throughout, you know the alliteration and uh, and the bob and the wheel and all of that is basically designed to help you know the storyteller not forget what's supposed to come next. So, you know, if he's like, oh, shit, I have to figure out what happens next. Oh, it rhymes with the thing I just said. Um, so I literally read it out loud to myself uh, for the first. I went through the first, um, the 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 uh, translation that we're reading uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Who, wait, who, who is that? <laughs> yeah, we should, we should, we should plug that guy. I think he, I think he might need some, some bookstore shelf space. Yeah, I'll have to look into that name. Uh, so uh, <laughs> he, he he divided it, and I think I've I've read that some of the people had objections about it, but uh, he he divided it in what like five parts. Um, yeah. And uh, I so the first part I went over just multiple times. I had to I I read it to begin with, and I was just like I my brain just wouldn't wouldn't grasp onto it, and I was and I was like and instinctively I knew. You know, having done this before, uh, again, it's been a minute, but having gone through some of this stuff, studying Middle English before, um, so I had to go back, reread it. I actually found um, a, uh, uh, a sound cloud of uh, somebody, I forget who it was, it was a relatively well-known English actor uh, reading from this adaptation a segment from the beginning of it, uh, just because it helped me to get into the rhythm of it, you know, just to hear hear the the sort of... Okay, I get it. So between reading it out loud and listening to somebody reading it, I found that it was a lot easier to to continue to move along. And you know, to James's point, once you get used to it, um, your brain just sort of adapts to it. You know, uh, and and then you start to go like, yeah, of course, every line is going to be full of W's or K's or whatever. You know, alliteration, and of course, it's going to end with with these with these you know this rhyme scheme and the and the bob and the wheel, and it becomes very natural, and you can kind of start moving through it. So, um, I also you know I'm because I I'm I'm a bit of a, a nerd. I was curious to like look at the actual old Middle English because it's again it's been a while. But one of the things that I had to do in those Middle English classes was learn to read and and speak Middle English. So I was able to kind of like look. You can find uh, online. You can find transla not even translations, but but like versions of the poem in Middle English. And Middle English is um, like seventy percent 
the same as modern English. You know, like the pronunciation is different, uh, but but like you can kind of muddle your way through it. So I found that kind of fun, you know, and like a and like a, and like again, like a oh, this is what it was like when I was an English major undergrad. You know? <laughs> I can go and look this up, and I can you know you can go back and forth between the translated text and look and go like oh, that's what that word was translated to. Um, so I, I found that to be uh, just just a, a real good time that I'm sure other people <laughs> might find really dull. But yeah, every, we're that. really we're really exciting people now. Yeah, uh, like, and then you can read the poetry in a foreign language. <laughs> yeah, go read old English. Wait till they hear that like some of the scenes are repetitive. Like they they in the same oh, way that yeah. like you're saying. I think it's sort of a device so that the storyteller can remember. We encountered that in our I think our Cinderella coverage. Maybe also our Snow White cover. Like a lot of these older things we've tackled, we notice in those like Brothers Grimm fairy tales. They love that repeat something three times, and then on the third time, like something changes or there's some sort of lesson learned. Um, and they do they do something here too. For the modern reader, I don't really need that to tell me this scene is important. You can you just like convey that through the text. But it's it, it like and so like it feels a little dated and it feels a little like you roll your eyes a little bit and you're like oh, I wish that we weren't seeing this a third time. But you know, yeah, this thing from the this thing from the 14th century feels a little dated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and uh, to Eric's point, I uh, uh, I also looked up how this is supposed to sound, and then I read I think like the first thirty or forty pages of this thing. I read aloud to my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Did they like that? Where they they got to hear it? Oh yeah, they they loved it. They were hanging on every word for sure. <laughs> they were vibing, huh? I did. Uh, I found the alliteration to be fun. I just I don't know. It's always it was kind of fun to read. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed just it. Just to say. And, and uh, some of that, uh, some of the, the musicality of these lines, I think, makes it directly into the movie. I, I think there's sort of this this opening that is being told in this woman's very ominous voice. Um, and I think that I don't know if it's an exact quote from the poem, but it feels like it is. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff I loved. Um and uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if we want to get into too much of like the plot of the poem. I, I think we'll instead react to it as we go through the movie discussion. I just wanted to say I just I f- saw behind the scenes that uh, that's actually the director, David Lowry and his wife, Augustine Frizzle. Uh, their voices mixed together as really? like, the mix for, for that like <laughs> ominous narration. I thought it was the mother because I thought it sounded similar to the mother's voice, which we we then hear later and a couple of different moments, which I wanted to talk about. I thought it was the same as the opening, but I guess it was different. According to what I saw, the, the opening narration was them. Uh, uh, one other thing I want to just mention real quick. If you've been listening to our uh, coverage of The Wheel of Time, uh, I won't get too far into it because it's kind of spoilery for those books and uh, the show, I guess, maybe. Um, but there is mention of a green man. And yeah. uh, a journey to a green man's sort of place. And man, if it, I wasn't thinking about that a lot when I was reading this. I could not believe how similar it was. I, I was you, you mentioned in one of the episodes that, you know, Robert Jordan, um, he drew from Arthurian legend. But I didn't, you know, I guess I wasn't a, like I wasn't initiated enough to know that you know i i I know some arthurian legend but not like that not enough to to understand how how deep the references are going there totally dude like i did not know this story at all um i know a little bit uh just from my mostly what i've seen in like movies um but not original source material stuff and like uh apparently he was touching on this poem because there's a lot of similarities you can touch there so just as a coincidence too right we just kind of wanted to cover this because now because it's 
Christmas and we felt like it would be funny kind of fun thing to do for Christmas but at the same time to be touching so closely with this other fantasy story that we're sort of in the middle of right now as far as the the show is concerned yeah weird synchronicity yeah yeah I do just want to mention before we jump into the film uh, I do I want to talk about the filmmaker David Lowry okay so He's an American filmmaker. Uh, His original work, Ain't Them Bodies Saints, starring Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck, was nominated for the Jury Prize at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival. In 2016, he directed the Disney film Pete's Dragon, a live-action film which he had co-written. It was a new work loosely based on the same original story as the 1977 musical of the same name. In 2018, he directed The Old Man and the Gun, and in 2021, he directed the fantasy epic The Green Knight. Wow. So, I mean, he's fair, it seems like he's fairly new to the directing game. Somewhat new, but he's established enough to have directed a pretty... I, I saw Pete's Dragon, and I remember when it was coming out, I think it was sort of a, a bomb for them in general. But, uh, you know, to be to be helming a, a large-scale live-action Disney film like that is not is no small feat. So, you know, he, I think very quickly, they being a Sundance, you know, darling i think will will help your career pretty quickly right. so 2013 to now like very quickly but it, it is interesting to see that like the green knight is sort of a departure in terms of the things that i've seen from david lowry and and um i think a welcome one for one and also like i think he he set himself up for for this like i just the, the weight that he brings to this story and the way that he handled it is really interesting but something else i want to note is covid had a lot to do with this film and the release of this film they finished filming, I believe, right before COVID, the lockdown fully initiated, and he spent all of that time editing this film. And specifically, I listened to an interview where he spoke of uh, he spent like 15 months. He would he would cut a little bit from the first scene and then go cut another scene and come back to that that first scene where we're getting like the Green Knight showing up at the at the round table and everything. The way okay. that it was cut, he says that is a, is a labor of love that took 15 months of and like he felt like COVID f- for this for this film's release was it actually helped him because uh, originally it was supposed to premiere and he wasn't quite 100% happy with the edit and he felt like he got plenty more time to edit. And interesting that, you know, to be a director and an editor, we've seen that a few times, but it's very notable because like to have that much control over and that technical skill as well that's required. And I think that shows up. I mean, again, like I said, like everything in this movie feels intentional, including the edits, including where you choose to linger and what is being shown. And there are a lot of times... A lot of cross-cutting in that first scene as well. Yeah, and uh, there's even a moment at the very beginning where we're watching a scene, and then it I think it goes dark, and then it comes back. And it's like, it's just like uh, some geese and some pigs, (laughs) I think, wandering around, and there's a fire in the distance. And I kept, like, watching it going, like, what's changed? Because it seemed like something was changing each time. And um, I don't know, and it it reminded me of that, like, uh, old painting too, like the, just the the look of it, um, which we we touched on a little bit. And like, was it Pride and Prejudice where they did something like that? So uh, yeah, it was cool. It, it reminded me of that scene a little bit. Something I would be remiss if I didn't mention also is um, Eric mentioned A24, and he actually directed a, an A24 film before this one called A Ghost Story, which I think is a little more lesser known as far as A24 is concerned. But it's amazing. You have to check that film out. It's it's really. Uh, Again, ton of weight to it. It emotionally will stick with you. I don't know if either of you have seen that movie. That's the, that's the only David Lowry movie I haven't seen. And it's I've been meaning to watch it, but uh, I, I haven't seen that one. I've seen the rest of his stuff. Oh, great. Well, I would love to hear your thoughts on like him as a director, too, because I, I, other than... The old man and the gun and a ghost story. I, I have, and I guess Pete's dragon. Technically, 
I'm not super familiar. I mean, Ain't Them Body Saints feels similar to this. Like you can you can kind of get a sense that it's a similar director. It's it's a different it's a different genre, but there's the same kind of uh, gravity. And I think I think that there's a similar kind of. Um, it's hard to it's hard to it's you know it's hard to put your finger on it, but there's definitely a quality to it um, that's similar. I think it, my impression of Lowry is that that there are two David Lowrys. There's there's the more mainstream David Lowry, and I love Pete's Dragon. I thought his version of Pete's Dragon was great. I mean, it's a really yeah. understated movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's not big and flashy, but I thought it was just like it was like a movie that. You know, uh, I, I enjoyed immensely when I watched it. And I also really enjoyed Old Man and a Gun. And those were pretty mainstream films. But then, but then Ain't Them Body Saints is not. And this is not. And the impression that I get is that a ghost story is also, uh, less mainstream. But maybe I'm, oh, I'm maybe, very yeah. much so. And you can see some of those, the stylistic similarities between a ghost story and the Green Knight. Um, I don't think that the unfortunately Pete's Dragon felt exactly the same as these. Like you said, more of a commercial film. No, it, it feels it, fe- it feels like it feels like a different director, but I like them both. Yeah, and he has a certain visual style that I like. I'm just a massive fan of. He, he like I remember when I saw a Ghost Story, just thinking like, oh man, I can't. I, I'll watch anything this person makes going forward. He gives so much like emphasis to the, his scenes based on like the way that he'll frame a he'll frame a room and and give you the uh lived in space that that you get like i i'm thinking specifically in in the green night where we get to to go around the the round table at like while in that first scene and and king arthur's giving the speech of like how he's the blessed one for having all these adventures in the way that we're getting basically the lore of this world and how king arthur's been on all these adventures with and he loves his country loves all of these people um and just the way that he chooses to like explore the space. Man, I am so ready to talk about the what actually happens in this thing. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you want to give us a, a, a chunk of plot here so we can get into it? Gawain is woken up on Christmas morning in a brothel by his lover, a common woman named Essel. He returns to Camelot and, following a scolding by his mother, Morgan Le Fay, attends a feast at the round table with his uncle, King Arthur, who invites Gawain to his side. In a tower, Le Fay performs a magic ritual which summons the mysterious Green Knight, who barges into Arthur's court and states that any knight able to land a blow on him will win his green axe but must travel to the Green Chapel the following Christmas and receive an equal blow in return. Gawain takes up the challenge. The knight yields and Gawain wielding Excalibur, decapitates him. The knight rises and lifting his severed head reminds Gawain of the bargain and leaves. I think that's a good place to stop. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot lot there. And just that scene on its own is like a short, you could just have that as a short film. It's just incredible. Mm. Um, This also reminded me something about David Lowry is he mentioned Excalibur, the film Excalibur, and um, Willow were some were some fantasy stories that he like absolutely loved, and he was thinking of while creating this his own version of Wait, Excalibur with like Kira Knightley. Is that Excalibur? no man? Nah, John Borman. Yes. Okay, this is a movie I yep. haven't seen. I think then. Oh, it's you got to you got to make time for Excalibur, Luke. Uh, okay. I, I literally grew up on that movie. That was one of my parents' favorite movies. So, like you know, uh, in the in the rotation at my house, it was uh, you know it was Star Wars. It was Excalibur. Uh, those were almost equal. I watched. I so wonder if much, I, I have seen it. this movie. I need, I need to look into that. You know, and, and I don't want to. I don't want to go off. But there are so many actors. When you watch Excalibur, you're like, oh my gosh, that's Liam Neeson, or oh my gosh, that's Patrick Stewart. Yeah. And these are all <laughs> yep. like future wow, famous okay. famous actors that are that are playing smaller hey, roles. I'm interested. It's amazing. And and I I, I him mentioning Excalibur. Uh, 
uh, I, you could see it like visually. And, and in fact, I, I would, I think that there is some very specific, uh, references to Excalibur. I would almost, uh. you could almost argue that this, this could be positioned as a sequel to Borman's Excalibur in the timeline. Wow. Like, I love in that. a way, in a way, like I, I watched it and I, because one of the things, uh, you know, I, 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 do we want to get into spoilers here? Or I guess we can just, if you don't want spoilers, run away, but otherwise, uh, keep listening. So in Excalibur, the Borman movie, um, and in many Arthurian legends, there's this there's this strong concept that Arthur's health and the health of the land are connected. Mm. That when Arthur is, and, and, and that's one of the biggest key differences. Well, there are a couple of huge differences between uh, the Sir Gowan and the Green Knight poem and, and the Green Knight that happened like right in that first section that James laid out. But one of them is that in the poem, Arthur is young and vibrant and Avalon or England and Britain is, is at the height of its wonder, you know, of wonderment. And in this opening section, it is not. And that's kind of where Excalibur ends, uh, the, the Borman movie. It kind of ends with the waning of Camelot. And I would, you know, from the opening bit, um, visually, the impression that I get is that Camelot is falling apart. I mean, we have that opening scene. I think one of you was talking about it where you see the ducks and the pigs walking around and there's just a house on fire in the background, yeah. <laughs> just burning. And, to you know, I remember watching that and thinking like, they never come back to it because this yeah. is just this is just a Camelot where houses just burn and people <laughs> yeah. are like, whatever. And in the background, you can hear screaming and sort of fighting and, yeah. and a man runs off and it seems like he's running into battle of some kind. And then there's the, you know, later, later there's more indications of this, but, um, Arthur talks when he's, you know, like, oh, and we're doing so great. We've brought all this stuff out. But what he says and what we're seeing are so at odds with each other that, that, that his kingdom is not looking good and Arthur's not looking good. And Lowry's made the choice to make Arthur and Guinevere. Guinevere, who traditionally in Arthurian legend is like the most beautiful woman she, you know, in the universe. Yeah. He made, look so deeply unhealthy and creepy you know? <laughs> and i feel really bad because i love the actor who plays guinevere but between the makeup and her presence she she creates this like creep factor that's undeniable well not to mention she like she like is like borderline possessed at one point when she's reading that letter oh yeah oh yeah uh, shout out to both of them, by the way. Uh, Sean Harris is Arthur. Uh, he has, I think, one of the best voices in movies right now. Absolutely love this guy. He has like this whispery, raspy thing that I, I absolutely adore. Um, and then Kate Dickey is who plays Guinevere, uh, known from Game of Thrones as the uh, Lady Aaron, who is also quite uh, weird and creepy in that show. So She breastfeeds for, for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah. For her son. Yeah, and it is an interesting choice for Guinevere because I was expecting this like un- unassailable beauty um, and, and they went a different direction, but I think it works. I love that you touched on that, um, the health of Arthur as tied to the health of the land because that kind of explained something to me that I didn't fully grasp. And again, that, that's kind of how this movie is. Like there's all these little things that can kind of unlock for you and you can go like, oh, I, I get something else now about this movie. And, and I think that unlocked something for me there too. I want to say I love the way that they recontextualize like Morgan Le Fay as being Gawain's mother and and the way that she's using some sort of like older magic like beyond this very Christian sort of Christmas Eve thing that that Arthur is like putting forth. I'm not sure that she might be his mom in the actual poem. I'm I'm not clear because there is some mention of her at the end and I wasn't 
I don't know the lineage, I guess. Are you more familiar with this, Eric? Uh, my understanding is that in the traditional uh, Gowan myths, pre-Lowry's adaptation, he is Arthur's nephew, but from a different sister. Uh, but I forget who that is. I, I, that's like just rattling around in my brain is that in traditional in traditional Arthurian stuff, like making Morgan Le Fay his mother, I think was a choice that, that uh, Lowry made in this movie rather than... From what on- I understand, Morgan Le Fay is also like a sort of a, was a disciple of like Merlin or something like that yes. at some point, right? She's, a, she's like a... Uh, but more of on a, like an ancient magic sort of side of things. Right. And she is in the poem and she's mentioned at the end as being someone who was influential in what happens and, and casting her spells and stuff. Um, but I, yeah, I can't remember if it was like your mother, Morgan Le Fay, or was just like this no. person did this thing. In the, po- um, in the poem, she's just Morgan Le Fay, you know, okay. the infamous Morgan Le Fay. She, Morgan Le Fay, I think in, in Arthurian uh, poems and, and stories is sort of like, how like in comic books, like in a Fantastic Four comic book, it all comes back to Doctor Doom, you know, like, yeah. and then obviously Doctor Doom was responsible for it. And you're like, oh, okay. Uh, I mean, that makes <laughs> okay. sense. And it's interesting to make Gawain's, that Gawain's mother, because it's like, what, you know, what are her motives in this story? What is she wanting Gawain to go on an adventure to, to find honor? Or is she, you know, there's something more sinister there. Like, you know, it, it kind of, like you said, there's sort of a, maybe a sinister turn to her normally. Man, that you're, you're getting to some, some very interesting questions. And honestly, Honestly, like this is the kind of stuff that didn't I didn't get fully admit I didn't fully get this on first viewing. Um, it took it took like reflection before right. I started putting together the pieces. Um, even even that she summons the Green Knight, um, mm-hmm. it is sort of alluded to in the movie. It, it, and and if you and if you look at it a certain way, it's like yeah, obviously. It also like could be just she's doing this other thing and the knight shows up and these two things are like maybe somewhat related, but not necessarily ca- like causal. Um, so even that is like uh, a-, a step that you have to take. It doesn't it doesn't lay that out for you in simple terms. Right. I, I mean, I think it's clear enough because of the intercutting like we we're talking about. Yeah. And then, you know, she finishes the spell and he opens the door. I think it's at least I picked up on it. Uh, pretty pretty quickly and there's some color you know some color cues you know i think when she burns when she burns the paper that has the spell on it i believe it turns green and there's like a green shoot that comes up i believe the seal is even green on the letter the seal right? is green yeah. yeah so all of the all of, you know it, it is all sort of there there's a lot of color cues that indicate it but there's a lot in that section, right? Like when I restarted rewatch it, that was the section that I specifically wanted to rewatch after having mm-hmm. watched the entire movie, because that's the part when you're watching it on the first viewing, you're like, I'm not really sure who's what all these characters' motivations are or or who's doing what. But then when you see the whole story, when you go back and watch it, my impression of what they're doing was completely different than on first viewing. I had a very different read. Yeah, I feel like everybody seems creepy. Like you mentioned, like Guinevere and Arthur, you're like, what's going on? Like, why are they treating Gawain the way they are? Like, why are they giving him preferential treatment? Um, and then and then ultimately the biggest like what the fuck moment for me this was, why does the Green Knight come in and then just like yield after giving this challenge? Like, how does that make any uh, sense? That is such an interesting like I, that's what I've been thinking about, like the whole the whole concept around the challenge and what how you're supposed to react to that challenge. I think that's where I think Lowry's answer might be different from what the, the anonymous poet might've, might've thought. That's where I think that he might've, might have a different moral. And you can look at it and say, well, why did he cut his head off? 
because if the game is whatever you do to me, I'm going to do to you. Why do that? I have an interpretation on what I think that that is personally, but um, I don't understand the Green Knight's reasoning for for yielding. But that my my opinion on Gawain is that, especially in the film, and and I think this is a cool change or at least a cool emphasis that I didn't really get from the poem was Gawain. You know, he's this like he's a, a relative of Arthur. Of course, he wants to have some sort of honor to his name. He wants to be renowned, and so you know. Arthur, especially in the poem, was going to was going to fight the Green Knight. And you think through Arthur's adventures and the experiences that he has, he understands the game. Remember, he walks up to Gawain in the film and says, like, remember, it's just a game. He whispers it to him. And so I think the, the, the idea behind that is that Arthur would have just struck him a blow instead of chopping his head off, knowing that ultimately he would also have to in turn get the same blow. But I think Gawain being inexperienced sees this as a moment to gain glory. So killing, like thinking that, oh, I chop its head off, the Green the, the Green Knight will forever be over. dead yeah. and I win this glory. And instead, the Green Knight picks up the head and he's like, oh, fuck, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. You know, and the ensuing journey begins. Right. I, exactly. I, I think that's it's, it's like an overreach on, on Gawain's part. Like he, he is he's reaching for that greatness. And that that is a key feature of Lowry's adaptation is that Gawain is not heroic. This is a guy who spends all of his time in the brothel, drunk, like he hasn't done anything of note. He even admits to Arthur. Arthur's this great hero who he is related to, but like, uh, yeah, he's not done anything noteworthy. And he seizes this moment as a chance at greatness. Um, and he has this discussion with uh, Essel uh, later where he, she says, why isn't good good enough? Uh, why, why, do you, why does it have to be greatness? And I think that's an essential question for this movie, right? And uh, it's his, it's his like greed over wanting to be great um, that gets him in a lot of trouble here. I think. Right, and I think that's that's touching on the overall um, sort of what the idea behind the story is and why some of the changes happened. And it's sort of has to do with the way that like virtue, like understanding like the five tests that that are presented before Gawain and the way that like typically knights in these stories um, embody those like five virtues. Yeah, that's a big thing, right? Like what it means to be a knight, what it means to be chivalric and have honor is definitely at the heart of the story. Um, that did that just the five reminded me of a, of a note I saw that I thought was interesting. And that's that this poem was the first written appearance that I guess people can find of the uh, pentacle appearing in written form. Really? Yeah. Uh, like wow. The first written reference to a pentacle is in this poem. It's pretty Very cool. interesting. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. the symbol that's on his shield. There's like actually a devoted section where they talk about the pentacle and what it means. Um, and this like the, the lines that are like never ending and connected and all this stuff. Um, it really gets into it. And, um, I don't know. It's kind of, and that's what, so there's, there's these two readings of this poem and I guess I'll set them up here a little bit. One is that it is, it is ultimately very Christian. Um, and that it is, um, all about the, the green sort of, uh, pagan world sort of encroaching and having to be battled and dealt with nature per se nature, nature. Yeah, yeah in order to be a knight like you have to resist nature and re- nature is also represented in like the temptation of sex and having to resist that um in order to maintain your virtue 
Um, the other reading of it is actually like the polar opposite, <laughs> and that is that um, that that is happening. However, it is the humanity of Gawain and his his uh, his flaws and his fallibility that he has to learn to accept in order to move forward. And it is sort of a a, a uh, lesson in not forgetting about the past and not forgetting about nature and the pagan ways um and and your in your christianity um needs to include both um and in that way it was uh if you read it that way it could have been a criticism of christianity at the time that was trying to distance itself from uh the 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 paganism that a lot of it was based on um and i think lowry probably holds to that interpretation a little more is my guess so Gawain spends a year reveling before Arthur reminds him to uphold his end of the challenge. Gawain departs on horseback for the green chapel, taking the axe and a green girdle made by his mother, who claims that no harm will come to him so long as he wears it. During his journey, Gawain meets a boy scavenging a battlefield littered with dead bodies. The boy directs Gawain to a stream that will lead him to the green chapel. Shortly afterwards, the boy and two others ambush Gawain and steal the axe, girdle, and horse, leaving him tied up. Gawain severs his bonds with his sword and pursues them. By nightfall, Gawain arrives at an abandoned cottage and falls asleep in the bed. He is awakened by the ghost of a young woman named Winifred, who asks Gawain to retrieve her head from a nearby spring. He reunites her skull with her skeletal remains and the next morning finds the axe has been returned to him. What a, what a cool moment uh, meeting, this, meeting this scavenger out on the battlefield. I really like this character um, and he has this kind of combative back and forth with uh, Gowan as he's on his horseback riding across the battlefield and he ends up getting a coin from him that he sort of guilts him into giving um, and then of course later on he is at the head of this group that ambush him in a very unheroic like he totally gets bested by these like three people who don't seem particularly skilled um, just because he's not able to get to his sword basically right or his axe and is also like begging for for he's not very courageous in this moment because he's not begging for them not to kill him. And I think and he's even saying like I'm not a knight, I'm not a knight, and they're like you look like a knight. Shout out by the way to Barry Keoghan who plays the scavenger. Um, he's been popping up in a lot recently. He was in the Eternals recently. Okay, he's great. I yeah. haven't seen the Eternals. So that's not where I know him from. I know him from something else. But he he's very familiar. Uh, yeah, and then this really cool scene, right, where they take all of his stuff, they break his shield, I think, and they leave him for dead, and he's tied up, and there's this cool moment where the, where the camera pans through the woods, and he's just left there, right? Um, the guy leaves with the axe, um, and the other two chase after him. He's just left there tied up. The camera pans, and we see a skeleton that appears to be wearing the exact same clothes as him, tied up in the exact same manner. So it's doing a full 360 rotation, starting with Gawain, yeah. rotating 360, then showing his showing his skeletal remains, and then rotating all the way back to all show him back. there again, live and in the flesh. Okay, so so that's what you your read was that it, this skeleton is not there. I was going to ask you if if you thought that the skeleton is actually there. There's a there's a callback to the first part of the film or earlier in the film where where they're showing the story of Gawain encountering the Green Knight, and it has right. a wheel. 
and the then puppets. it goes backwards yeah. yeah with the puppets and it goes back and forth so i think it's i think it's they've established this device of the wheel moving is the passage of time so uh i do think it's a fun you know uh stoner or drinking game to say like what if the whole rest of the movie is that gowan dies in that scene <laughs> and then everything else is just the delusion that he has after he's dead because that's a totally yeah. valid read in my or opinion. or the delusion he has after he eats a bunch of psychedelic mushrooms or, yeah, there's, there's multiple parts in the movie where you could go like and then maybe everything that follows from here is not real but this yeah. is the first one that's like it would make sense right to a certain degree that that's the end of his story um that he you know he has, goes off to have this wonderful nightly adventure and you know he's kind of a jerk he has no idea what's going on in the kingdom around him there's this war zone i thought that was really interesting in that in the terms of like the health of avalon and the health of arthur and england that there could just be this massive war zone where all these people are dead and gowan's just never heard of it because he's been back in a tavern getting drunk you know uh not not worried about it and or you know like i also wondered you know later on if maybe there's some weird like if that battlefield actually is 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 the battlefield that happens later in the film like in the in the final in the finale of the movie there's another battlefield that's kind of handled similarly I thought is he walking through a battlefield that hasn't happened yet so there's a lot of interesting yeah i don't know maybe because i mean we're getting into i mean we're in spoilers so like we can say here that I think there's an open question of whether or not this scavenger guy is actually the Green Knight and in some sort of form, because in the in the poem, he the Green Knight is the Lord, which we'll get to here in a moment. And so you could say that Lowry has decided to make the Green Knight and or the spell right from from uh, his mother and all of this is sort of magic and not real. And in that case, it could be breaking the you know the bounds of time, and it could be a future battle. Um, that's an interesting possibility I hadn't considered. But yeah, I mean, like, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it, you know, everything we see basically after he leaves, none of that could be real, or all of it could be real. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, and that that's the point, right? It's it's kind of both. It's at yeah. the same time. It gets it gets precipitously stranger though after uh, after the encounter with the with the scavenger and the right on the surface. It's the most normal, but that ju- and then right after that, the entire rest of the story just gets more and more fantastic. Yeah, um, well, and and as and as creators like yeah, Eric, like, we know like right like you could you can do this kind of shit, and then like there's no answer. Like, if someone wants to watch it and believe that that is true, like, they're welcome to do that. And that can be true for them. And you know what I mean? Like, there's no right answer to that. Yeah, it's it's more it's more fun to create the conflict of ambiguity in yeah. all of that storytelling than it is to give a concrete answer. The answer the answer is usually both and, yeah. you know, like both and or, you know, like all of the above. It's whatever whatever you find interesting. Right. Uh, I do want to touch back in with the uh, the like knightly virtues. Like the so I've had the list here. The five traditional knightly virtues are friendship, generosity, chastity, courtesy, and piety. This would be this would be the generosity virtue test here. As like he this the scavenger is asking for for money of some kind, 
and he gives him a single coin when he has this you can hear him rustling with the bag and he gives him a single coin and like you know who's to say if even if he had given him the whole bag the scavenger probably still would have like jumped him in the woods with his with his friends there but this is this is clearly showing that he's not very generous so that's not very knightly in the first place he says it wasn't enough the scavenger makes it a point yeah yeah that's i mean that, that that's called back you know like uh Going back to like the opening with like what's the motivation behind some of these characters and the you know like what's the motivation of Lefay uh, summoning the Green Knight? What's the motivation of the Green Knight? What's the motivation of Gallon? You know, these are things that on first viewing I remember being kind of confused by, and my 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 the kind of the conclusion that I've come to, um, or at least the theory that I think is I like the best. That's the best way to put it. Like, yeah. this movie, I don't think there, there has to be a right answer, but the one that I find most satisfying is that Morgan Le Fay is trying to test Gowan, not necessarily in a, in a bad way. She's basically saying, like, you know, you need to get out of my house. You know, you need to move yeah. out of my basement. <laughs> you need to grow stop, up. You need to stop getting drunk and hanging around with your with yeah. your horse, playing Xbox all day. You need to get a job, Gowan. You need to get, you know, your uncle, your uncle Hero can night. employ you. That's your yeah, job. Your, <laughs> your uncle can give you a job. So I'm going to give you, this is easy. All you have to do is go through this. And I think consistently until the end, he keeps failing these tests. And so it's almost like it's almost like uh, if you want to give somebody a job interview and you want to hire him, but then you ask him a question and you're like, so what would you say is why should I hire you? And you're like, well, I'm not high right now. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not, like I sobered up enough? for this interview. Like, and you're like, this was such a low bar. Like all he had to do was not say that. <laughs> and that's the same thing. Like all he had to do was give him like three coins. You know, like all the the whole way along, like every one of these tests, these are not hard tests that he's given. He he meets with um uh this uh what's Winifred is her name I think, and I read somewhere that this is actually a reference to another legend from the area uh that I guess doesn't appear in the poem, but um, Lowry decided to include about this headless woman who I guess was killed by a knight. Um, and in this in the story, she gets her head returned to her, and I guess she comes back to life. Um, and we get something kind of similar here, but not the return to life. Um, and she, he's, he's tasked with looking for the head. And uh, to your point, he asks, what do I get in return if I get your head? And she says, why would you even ask that? <laughs> yeah. that, is, that moment, that moment, like I, I remember like pausing it and just kind of turning to my wife and being like, this is such a Dungeons and Dragons moment. <laughs> You know, like, like you're like, in fact, there's a reading that I enjoyed doing of this, of this entire movie of just being like, this is a dungeon master really trying to get Gowan to do like a pretty, pretty normal D and D game. And when he's just like, okay, so, um, you know, you could be a knight of the round table. Do you want to do that? And it's like, now I'm going to go back to that brothel. <laughs> like you are not following the, the, the options that I'm giving you. And then, okay, so there's this skull and like, what do I get? What's the, what gold yeah. is in it for me? And it's what is like, this, oh, what does this spirit on. offer me in return? <laughs> come on, just, just play the game. Stop being a jerk. You're supposed you know, to like, be a hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So good. Uh, oh, and that uh, that actor, by the way, I recognized her from Winter. What is it? Falcon and the Winter Falcon Soldier. Falcon and Winter Soldier. Um, yeah. And then uh, she was also in the Han Solo movie, right? Solo, I think. Yep. Yeah, I really like her. Um, I'm going to be interested to track her career going forward. I think she she does interesting work. Not a big role here, but um, someone that that I you know again I had a lot of issues with uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but uh, and in particular with her character. However. 
she's an interesting performer, and I, and I, I want to see what she does going forward. Every actor uh, that, that's in this movie, every single one of them is fantastic. Like, there's not a there's not a there's not a dull penny in the bunch. Agreed. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, there's the crossroads where there's like a skeleton hanging in the cage. Oh yeah. And apparently, people have said that that's a reference to uh, when Val Kilmer's character is in the he's caged in in a similar manner. Um, so just a, like you you had mentioned, uh, Eric, that you saw maybe some references to to Excalibur. There's oh, one yeah. from Willow potentially there. And I think I think he I think he seeds in some other visual Easter eggs for some of those other movies. Yeah. I want to rewatch mm-hmm. Willow. It's been a long time. Um, I think we might be getting another Willow movie, by the way. So I, that would be a good time to watch it. Um, regardless, I wanted there's a couple of things you reminded me of here. So in that opening, there's a pretty long shot of him just going through the countryside with the children chasing after him. And then it kind of pans around and you see, and then it's followed up by another sequence where we see a bunch of trees being chopped down. And I'm like, well, everything in this movie is clearly intentional. So I'm like, this is very intentional. And I think that it is setting up this sort of undercurrent of modernity as such as it is at this time versus the old ways and, and the forest and the natural world. Um, and that's, I think, followed up by this this monologue about the color green that we get in here in a little bit that I, I want to read, actually, because I love it so much. Um, and I, I think that's some clever setting up of this essential theme that will be tracked going forward. Um, and then also just a, a lovely scene. Like, just, li- just I, this is the stuff I wish modern filmmakers would do more. It's like... You've you've created a beautiful situation. You're in an amazing location. You have great costumes. Like your characters look amazing. Let the scene linger for a minute and let us drink it in. And they do it here, and I and I love it. When you take a moment and pause, the audience is just looking at a similar image. And after they've processed it, some they're going to take some time to to digest and think about the things that they've already seen. Why are we still looking at this? (laughs) Yeah. And so it's a chance for you to, to recoup, understand what's happening think of what you think will be happening and then also what's significant about that scene because it's lingering for such a long time um so you know i and to me that that's like a confident thing to do in filmmaking you know that's the thing that shows that like you understand you're taking it you're taking your audience on a journey and you have time to to be very deliberate about it and i I just love that's i think a calling card of a filmmaker who's like you know, you're on a journey. Take everything you t- take, everything you see, not only with a grain of salt, but like take it in stride and sort of like, um, you know, just enjoy the ride. It's going to be a slow burn film some of the time. Two that brings up two points real quick. Uh, one of them is kind of silly, and that is that I absolutely fucking love the color of the cloak that uh, Gawain has. I've been looking for like a garment of that color for i don't know years and I, I feel like it's impossible to fucking find it's like a it's it's a very particular kind of yellow though all right well i love that you brought that up because it's actually the thumbprint belonging to the costume designer malgosia terzanska's husband the cinematographer joe anderson what so <laughs> so his fingerprints are literally on this film if that makes sense you know the cinematographer. Uh, okay, so I, you're sorry. There's like some swirliness in the in the in the like embroidery. I think I noticed what you're talking about. But I, I just I just love that color. I, I want like a jacket or something that's that color. I think it would be cool. Um, minor point, but <laughs> um, the other thing that I remembered is that the scavenger says because he says, "Where is is the Green Chapel real? Is where is it where you told me, or something like that?" And he says. We're in it now. Or how do you know we're not in it now? Something to that effect. I wish I had the exact line written down. 
and that I was like, oh, so so that leads into that uh, what Eric was saying, like maybe he just entered the Green Chapel here and everything that occurs from this point on takes place in this Green Chapel. Well, I got to give some more summary here. Yeah. So Gawain befriends a fox who accompanies him on his journey. He reaches a castle inhabited by a lord who informs him that the Green Chapel is nearby and Gawain accepts his invitation to stay. The Lord's Lady, who resembles Essel, makes seductive overtures towards Gawain. The Lord proposes they exchange what he obtains while hunting with whatever Gawain finds at the castle. The next morning, the Lady presents Gawain with the green girdle, which she claims to have made herself. Gawain accedes to her advances in exchange for it. Gawain flees and encounters the Lord in the forest. The Lord kisses Gawain in return for his Lady's actions. But Gawain does not give him the girdle. The Lord reveals that he has captured Gawain's fox but releases it. Gawain reaches a stream where a boat is waiting. The fox speaks, imploring Gawain to abandon the quest. Gawain takes the boat to the chapel where the knight is seated in hibernation. Gawain waits through the night and the green knight awakens on Christmas morning. Wow. Okay. So a lot to touch on here. I actually have a couple of questions coming to us from Instagram. One of our listeners, uh, Jesse, wrote in, uh, excited that we were going to be covering this and uh, had a couple of questions for us to, to answer. So I'm going to hit Eric with them, uh, at least one of them here, and then we will we will react as well. So she says, I really like the scene with the giants. I assumed they were some sort of hallucination, but I'm not sure. Are they real? And what do they symbolize? Also, do they have more story in the poem? I mean, the, 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 the last part is the easiest part, right? That's the easy part to answer. The giants are not, do not feature in the, in the poem. There's in like fact, a most, line, a line that maybe could be about giants. It's about some yeah. sort of like ogres or trolls. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. There is some reference. There's My, like a line, so, but they don't do anything. And in fact, I think even the guy, like the poet says, but I won't get into that as if, as if we yeah. wouldn't be interested in hearing about giants and ogres. <laughs> Why would anybody want to see some giants? Um, yeah. Uh, I, so the poem, you know, and I didn't go line by line, but it pretty much goes like Gowan is in Camelot. Gowan leaves Camelot. Some stuff happens. It's less interesting. He gets to the green chapel. Yeah. And yada, yada, yada. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be interested to hear about all this anyway. So like all, yeah. all of the movie from pretty much when he leaves Camelot to when he gets to the green chapel, like that comprises a very, very slender amount. In the the castle with the Lord. That's right. the next big so section the of the castle, poem. Right? Not, yeah. the, not the green chapel. So, yeah. um, uh, what do the, what do they symbolize? Wow. I mean, what yeah. do, you know, I don't know. Right. I okay. mean, <laughs> I, I do know one of the things about those giants that I thought was, was, was interesting. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, and this is like a question mark. So I actually, while watching the movie stopped in the credits to just check this and I didn't go online to research this. So maybe one of you guys has, it looked to me like all of the giants were played by women. So it looked like for some reason they're all women. I think so. Um, but I don't know what that means. There is some weird stuff. I mean, I say weird. That's that's that that sounds wrong. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there is some complicated stuff going on with with gender in this movie. There's some very like uh, there is a literal whore mother matron kind of thing going on, like in in all the women in the movie. There's very explicitly like that 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 reflects that kind of that trinity. And then you've got. Uh, Winifred, who's 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 the martyr, you know, or the or the or the virgin, um, and then you got the giant. So where do the giants fit in with the virgin 
you know, the mother and the whore dichotomy or the, the natural world or what? I think the poet was referencing Attack on Titan. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cue, cue the intro music. <laughs> I actually have another, th- I have another theory. <laughs> what I find more interesting about the giants um, is the, the, the camera work that happens right after he kind of encounters them when the camera yeah. looks upside down. And, and, uh, which, which, which to me, like visually cued, like, okay, we've gone down, we've gone down the rabbit hole. Like we are, we are now in like a higher level of, so I kind of thought the giants just signified, like, if you thought things were a little strange with that, with that headless martyr that had you go into a pond, well, get ready because you're going to find some magic mushrooms in a minute and, and it's going to go, it's going to go hard. <laughs> um, I, I think the magic mushrooms actually precede the the giants. I think it, it, he eats the magic mushrooms, he sees a figure, and then I think the next scene we see, he finds the giants, right? Am I right on that one, James? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are your take on the giants uh, before I give mine? Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it comes back down to that nature thing that we were talking about before. Like, there's some some form of like closer to nature than like we as humans are. They're not. They're clearly not man-made of any kind. So it's like some some sort of like you know like in other philosophies, like Gaia is like the Earth, and maybe some attachment to nature in some way. Um, it's also interesting too because they reach out, and then the fox like barks at them or whatever, Howls, squeals at them. Yeah howls and then and then they they stop back up and then also howl so yeah. there's like a connection there Same as well weird so howl. for me it's some sort of nature th- thing okay i took a trip uh through the english countryside at one point and one of the things that is is common in the english countryside which you know i was younger and i thought oh there are these giant chalk giants that are kind of carved into hillsides and almost all of them are men with massive erections so, uh, so there, are, it's, it's, it's kind of like, a, it's considered to be like this old throwback thing. It's kind of like from the same era as like Stonehenge or something, but there's this, there are these people that went and they like carved out these, what kind of look like these giants, but in, in the actual reality, they are, they are very clearly masculine phallic symbols. So I thought I, that, that, that occurred to me, like knowing, knowing that that is just something that's present in England, that people went out and like carved giant men into the hills it was an interesting inversion to see giant women uh in the movie okay so uh i read a little bit about the poem and that that informed my my read of this scene a little bit and that was that there is a feminist reading of this poem that maybe the poet was playing with the idea that although this story centers all around masculinity and the search for becoming a knight and the sh- the chivalry of of the masculine ideal of the time Th- women control kind of everything going on if you look at the the mother and her spells the lady and her temptations in a sense the if the power is actually residing with the women then you can look at the lens through that lens of the poem is like maybe saying something like kind of feminist in an early way, just like a hint of that, right? Like maybe there's some real power here. And then you could see David Lowry taking that and saying, well, my story's definitely got that going on. We have the witches controlling everything. So maybe that is something about the power of women um, and uh, him being confronted with it. And um, it's interesting that he like asks for a ride but then, I don't. 
I guess he's he's not rejected, but the 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 giant like reaches out at him, and then the, I think the the fox starts howling, and then retracts. So I'm not sure how that all ties into my read of this as some sort of feminist allegory, but um, that's the only thing I can take away from it. Um, there is a whole phenomenon and mythology surrounding giant people, giant humans. Um, that is like a real world thing, um, and so I think he's definitely playing with that idea um as we're touching on different myths and uh yeah all women maybe maybe it's something to do with these these witches who are kind of controlling everything i also the other observation that i had watching those scenes is i was like is that david lowry is being the head model because i don't know if anybody if you guys have seen pictures of the guy but uh his head he's you know he keeps his he keeps his head shaved okay and he kind of looks a little bit reminiscent to like one of those giants <laughs> like wow. i could picture i could picture his head uh okay like because I had I had seen pictures of David Lowry before before seeing this, and I was like, in fact, I asked myself while I was watching it, I was like, did David is is David Lowry maybe one of those giants? And that's one of the reasons that I was checking the actors because it yeah. kind of maybe with a woman's body. I don't know. I, uh, I, I, I doubt it, but it, was, it yeah. was something that I noticed that was like, hey, again, so much of this movie, it's just, you know, you sit around with your friends and you eat French fries and you go like, what if yeah. David yeah. Lowry is the lady that's walking <laughs> around? You know, like, what yeah. would that mean, guys? Well, I have another question from Jesse on Instagram that I think uh, we'll have a, maybe a similar kind of discussion. So I want to hit it here because we introduced the fox. So her question is about the fox. She says, the fox reminded me of a scene in Lars von Trier's Antichrist. When the fox sp- speaks to Willem Dafoe and says, quote, chaos reigns, is the fox a common guide or friend or more of a sign of bad things to come? So really, I think just what is the fox in this movie is the ultimate question here. I, I haven't seen Antichrist. I am familiar of it. I know Willem Dafoe's in it, and I know it has a very famous scene in it. But other than that, I don't know much about the movie. So um, the fox to me... Um you know, initially just sort of a guide character, you know, it takes the place of there's a there's a person in the story who who leads Gawain to almost the Green Chapel, like on right. the way After to after he it. leaves the, um, the manor, but before he right. gets to the chapel, there's like a guide character, yeah. Yeah. So this this fox has been showing up before that, kind of takes the place of that role, but also speaks and and in some readings I think you could see it as potentially Lafay, right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought I thought there was some connection to Lafay. That was I don't know why. I just was you know like I, it felt it felt like that was that was part of it. Whether she's testing him or helping him. Yeah. So my yeah. wife, when we watched that scene, said, "I think that was his mother's voice when the yeah. fox speaks." We looked it up, and it was. Uh, it might be through a filter of some kind, but I think it, it it actually is her performing those those lines. What what I found really interesting about the fox in the movie was the way that the fox is portrayed in the poem. Um, and so in the poem, you know, we mentioned earlier that like a lot of these older stories like to do things in threes mm-hmm. and um, uh, trying to remember where we are. So we've already in this plot summary, we've gotten past the stuff with the Lord and the lady. So in the in the poem, there's this there's this sort of three days that pass and they're they're kind of back and forth there between between Gowan and the lady of the castle and the Lord out hunting. And on the first day, the Lord catches, I want to say, like a doe. Um, and then on the second day he gets, he get and the second day he gets a boar and on the third day he catches a fox. And in the, in the, in the reading that I did, and also just the way that the fox is captured, 
it sort of seemed to suggest that the fox represented some of his, the lady's wiliness. That like there was something going on in the poem by directly intercutting between the Lord hunting the fox. It sort of felt like, um, you know, there was some sort of test going on both on both sides. The Lord hunting the fox and Gowan being tested by the lady. And Gowan loses that test in the poem and in the movie. Um, I love I love the way that that summary kind of kind of kind of phrases it because it's a little bit more explicit in the movie. I was you know, going to say, yeah, uh, he accedes to her temptation. I have a quote from the poem I want to read here. So yeah, speaking about speaking about the seduction. Um, I, in fact, I thought, I thought the movie, the the poem actually got a little bit scandalous for a 14th century poem. Um, oh, this yeah. poem was this poem was very horny. Yeah, think, it, 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 a, like just uh, real. Yeah, Gawain is is uh, repeatedly enticed, and she uh, even describes the dress that I think we see in the movie, like. You know, it's it's very revealing that this lady is wearing. Um, I do love that Lowry decided to make it the same performer, the same actor, and uh, as both this and Essel is the same, right? So it's, I guess the the lust as it is opposed to virtue, is represented in the same person in a way. Um, I don't know what that means exactly, but regardless, um, that was a clever clever thing to do, right? Like, um, if if Essel represents a force that is pulling him away from his nightly duties then to have her show up as the lady is interesting because she has a, maybe a little more bearing but she's married so she is once again someone he should not be having a dalliance with and so then that temptation can take on a similar form in his life but here's a quote from the poem that I want to read so quote short body and thick waist with bulging buttocks spread more delicious to the taste was the one she by her led. Then the lady saith, body yaddy 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 yaddy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that last bit I added. Nice. Um, I, I like immediately thought, like, <laughs> this sounds like a Megan Thee Stallion like, fucking lyric or something. I was amazed that this was in this poem. Um, we got spreading bulging buttocks uh, here. Um, yeah, she's hot, and uh, she's got a slamming body, and... Uh, Gowan is horny for her. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you sort of watch this film from a surface level, I think the thing that you're going to remember the most is how explicit the scene eventually is, right? Oh yeah. And um, and the the uh, I <laughs> just like I remember like nervous laughter in my theater. Oh man, for sure, for sure. I think this is the first time I've seen semen in a movie other than <laughs> something about Mary, maybe, which was obviously very comedic. Um, right. and this wasn't so like it was it was shocking to see right I think I nervously laughed <laughs> right it's showing how like he's failed this this test of his yeah. you know nightly I don't know virtues in such an extreme way that like it's like it's like you know right away like he failed there's no question about it yeah and uh, he you know going forward the belt can, is covered in semen and yeah. it continues to be an important thing and it was in the story as well and the fact that he sees the Lord in the wood, and again they exchange the kiss, which was like the thing that he received. But in the in the in the poem, he doesn't, you know, he he doesn't fail in the same way. He fails because he he kisses and then re- gives the kiss to the Lord, but then ultimately fails because he doesn't give the belt. But here it's like his chastity that that they the virtue that he that he you know basically failed the test for. He like completely. Um, 
failed at sexual there was like a full sexual um you know interaction mm-hmm. basically and then in the wood he just kisses the lord one time and then doesn't give the, the belt so there's Fails something it even more spectacularly i would say in the film there's something very juvenile about the way it plays out you know with, with yeah Gowan. like by by shooting it that way by having by having him basically just you know uh a nocturnal emission. We'll use the euphemism like all but over du- the place. But during the day, <laughs> yeah. But during, during the day, but, but like having you know, but ha- but having you know, the, the it feels very much you know like accidental, like a boy, yeah, accidental, yeah. like a boy. Um, yeah. I, 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 to kind of touch on that, that the fact that like the character is of both the lady and Essel are played by the same actor, and kind of the the way that they the way that they go back and forth. Um, to suggest that Essel, and so th- I would read the poem as suggesting that knightliness is is what you want. Like at the end of the poem, my feeling is that the anonymous poet is like, and you should be like Gowan. And my sense from the movie is that no, literally everything Gowan has done this entire movie, maybe don't do that up until maybe the very end. You could argue that like he makes one decent, you know, choice yeah. and that's at the very end. And, and actually it's, it's choosing not to just stay with Essel that I think is a mistake in right. this film. I think, I think that, I think that, you know, she's not tempting him away from knightly virtue. He would actually be more virtuous if he had stayed and he had just settled down, you know, with her. So Right. Um, Although he sees his life later with her and it does not go the way she would want. So I think he knows that he's that that life is impossible for him. Um, well, and, and he's a real yeah. he's he's a real punk about it when yeah. she's like, you know, she ba- they basically have this little bit where she's like, and I love you. And he's just like, and I have to go, I think is the kettle on. Like, I <laughs> yeah, should, yeah. You know, like, I have to go now, baby. Yeah. I you can't know, like, manage to good. say anything in this moment. So you have to puppet me, which, yeah, that was pretty funny. Throughout the film, I was also realizing that like w- w- sort of what Eric's talking about this, the way that the film is making you feel about what it means to be nightly and I, I think it's also Lowry saying like the life is more complicated than just like doing a couple of good deeds and then you're this like chivalrous person for the rest of your life and and everything will go perfectly. It's like this idea that like knights are brave and they're they're brave and I think the people who are not knights and haven't been in these situations think of bravery as having no fear. And I think this this story is sort of showing from the the perspective of, you know, these knights aren't brave and they don't do these things that they do just to be a knight. They don't do it. They're not brave because they have no fear. They're brave because they face these fears. And as we come to the end of the story, like, you know, how he ultimately confronts the green knight is to, he finally clicks over for him. He finally understands that like, it's not about these like smaller deeds. It's about like the mentality that you have as a person approaching each of these encounters going forward and like sort of trying your best So first off, uh, to Eric's point, talking about what the poem seems to purport, um, the one of the readings I was I was I was reading about is that the the ribbon that he takes back with him and he ashamed reveals to the court what happened with the ribbon and they all in sort of a celebration of him all bind a ribbon to their own arms. Everybody takes up the ribbon and says, you know, I'm going to wear one too and celebrates him even with his failings. And, and 
in that reading, you could say maybe knightliness isn't as perfect as we want to as we want to make it out to be, and in fact, we should embrace imperfection and humanity and weakness as part of knightliness, I guess. So that is one potential reading of the poem that could back up that viewing of this movie. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to put that out there in case people who who are like experts on the poem listen to this thing and are like screaming. Um. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get you so I'm gonna get you so much hate, man. I'm gonna say something <laughs> like, and then this poem says this about knights, and then you know you're gonna get attacked by medieval scholars. I'm so, sure. Uh, yeah. D- direct them. Direct them at me. Famously, I, I medieval will. scholars are always coming after us. Uh, just. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, and then the other thing to what you were talking about, James, with the the like the fear. And I think particularly of death is an ex- like a, a primary theme for this movie. Learning to accept the reality of death and the inevitability, the na- the I guess the natural order of things where all living things die, is sort of a a journey that Gowan goes on, and um, I think finding bravery and the acceptance of death as an inevitability. Um, works on Gowan's behalf at the end, which we're about to get to. Um, so I think w- what you're touching on is is definitely one of the. It's kind of a change. Like I don't know that that is in the original poem. I think that's something Lowry is bringing to it, and something that I actually I responded re- to really well um, because it's kind of about like the nature of bravery and courage in the face of danger and having your life threatened. And I think Lowry's sort of reading between the lines of the poem and saying, like, what would it mean to accept I'm going to get my head chopped off and I'm going to go to this place where I know it's going to happen? And what would it take to do that? Um, and and even even when he's flinching away and having these moments of fear, um, the, the coming to terms with it and accepting it, um, there's a power to it. Um, and I think to really get into it, we might need to talk about this last section. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, let yeah, me yeah. just read this last <laughs> section here. So as the knight swings the axe, Gawain experiences a vision. In this vision, he flees back to Camelot and becomes king after Arthur's death. Essel bears his son, but Gawain abandons her, taking the child and marrying a noble woman instead. His son comes of age and dies in battle. Many years later, Gawain becomes a reviled king. With his castle under siege and his family abandoning him, he removes the green girdle and his head falls from his shoulders. Gawain awakens from this vision, still kneeling on the ground in the green chapel. Removing the girdle, he tells the knight he is ready to die. The knight praises Gawain for his bravery. The knight drags his finger across Gawain's throat and says, while kindly smiling, now off with your head as the film abruptly ends. Right. Um, So before we get into all of that, I want to read the quote. Uh, about green that I referenced earlier, because I think it's actually one of the most important quotes in the movie. And this is given by the lady when uh, Gowan asks why she thinks the night is green. She says, we deck our halls with it and dye our linens, but should it come creeping up the cobbles, we scrub it out fast as we can. When it blooms beneath our skin, we bleed it out. And when we together all find that our reach has exceeded our grasp, we cut it down, we stamp it out, we spread ourselves atop it and smother it beneath our bellies, but it comes back. It does not dally, nor does it wait to or plot or conspire. Pull it out by the roots one day, and then next, there it is, creeping in around the edges, whilst we're off looking for red. In comes green. Red is the color of lust, 
But green is what lust leaves behind, in heart, in womb. Green is what is left when ardor fades, when passion dies, when we die too. When you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone, and as the sun rises, green shall spread over all, in all its shades and hues. The verdigris will overtake your swords and your coins and your battlements, and try as you might, all you hold dear will succumb to it. Your skin, your bones, your virtue. So I love that monologue. First off, I was like, damn, that's some good shit. Uh, that's not in the poem. You might think it is, but that is uh, that is not. And I thought it was excellently written um, and, and a really powerful piece talking about, in my opinion, the, the, the nature of the, the, the natural world and how it intersects with our lives and our journeys through this life. And uh, I think it plays right into the themes of this poem and this movie. Yeah. I mean, that that uh, quote was, you know, it's clearly the filmmakers drawing a lot of attention to that. And and I, that was part of the reason why I felt like nature was so important to this story as well, because it is sort of a man against nature idea. This this human is going up against this green man who's clearly very tree-like. And, and then like, it's this idea of, of how you can't escape it. And like, um, a lot of, a lot of the other like allegory throughout the story that we've kind of touched on about nature, I think, I think is, um, legitimized by this, this monologue here. And I, you know, and I, I think it's, I think it's worthwhile to, to just take a moment and say that that monologue is both well-written, but it's incredibly well-delivered in it. Yeah. And, and, oh and, yeah. And, like the performance, uh, by, uh, uh, Vikander or Vikander? How is her last name pronounced? Uh, I think it's a Vikander. Yeah. She, she's she's phenomenal in the movie in general, but in that particular scene, that's you know like that should be her supporting actress. Uh, real. <laughs> yeah, it should you be. Know. Yeah, uh, I agree. And she's and, great. And, yeah, and also just the you know the whole scene and the way that it's the way that it's staged is incredible. So so we move on to the fox giving this uh, giving the the out. Right. The fox says, you can get out of here. No one will know the difference. You don't have to go to this green chapel. And he rejects it. Um, and my wife noticed that this was the voice of uh, the mother, at least from what she saw. <laughs> and um, she also led me down this research hole of finding out that there's some there's some hints with the hairstyles of different characters early on. And apparently the women who are with the mother may be his sister's. I guess that's how they're credited. Um, they have very particular hairstyles that then show up in characters that he encounters throughout. Like, I think the lady's hairstyle is the exact hairstyle of one of the women in the group and so on and so forth. So apparently there's some visual referencing going on to imply that maybe. Oh, and then the blind woman, or, or I mean, she's not necessarily blind, but she has the blindfold on who's at the castle um, is the same kind of blindfold that the mother puts on at some point during this ritual. So the implication being that maybe these women are actually these witches or some sort of, uh, you know, embodiment or, or spell that they're casting where they're, they're casting themselves into these roles. That's awesome. I, I hadn't picked up on that, but that's, I, I totally can see that now. Yeah. Or, or, you know, at the very least there's a dreamlike quality, uh, to the to the last third, of, well, to a lot of the film, but there's a there's a particularly dreamlike quality to the last third that, in and in dreams, you know, characters can symbolize or call back or reference multiple things. I think in particular, there's this like triangular 
hairstyle that is very striking that um is I think it's the dream he has when he's picturing the woman he's going to marry maybe at the end if he were to flee he it has this hairstyle and this hairstyle is the hairstyle of one of the women performing this ritual at the beginning. So, I don't know, there's some of these visual clues, I guess, and it's not something I picked up on. This is not something I picked up on. This is like after the fact research. And whether or not that's good for a movie, we can, do, you know, I think is open for debate. Um, but I, I guess it's there. So I just wanted to touch on it. I mean, my two senses that it is good, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, one 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 thought that I had about the three sisters, um, they do strongly remind me of the of the three witches that are so frequently present in so many other fantasy stories, and there's 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 some Shakespearean uh, echoes, I think, in this. Um, so I yeah, you know, you and can Shakespeare almost, you can would have been after and, this, right? It yeah. would have been after, but obviously Lowry, uh, Lowry is not one of one of the things that I you know. Um, to the theme of the color green and to the theme of knightliness and virtue and all of that stuff. One of the, one of the questions that, you know, I was, I was trying to mull and this is, you know, you guys tell me what your thoughts on this are because I don't come up with a satisfactory answer, but the answer I think is, says something about the movie. Why did David Lowry decide in 2020 or 2019 or whenever he decided to make this? Why did he decide to adapt The Green Knight when he decided to adapt The Green Knight? What about the modern era? What is going on in the world around us that made him want to reflect that in in this? What about some of these other touchstones? It's not I I I don't I don't think that it's just that he likes fantasy movies. I mean, he wrote and directed this film. He could have written and directed anything that he wanted. He didn't need to he didn't need to base this on the poem he didn't have to pay royalties there were no rights this is this is almost a thousand years old or closer to a thousand years old than than not um so why why in the in the in the in the 21st century uh is is he making this story what is he saying about the 21st century our life in this and how does that how does that interact with the themes that he's bringing up I think that's really interesting because whenever you see people make period stories or dive back into older mythology, you'll often you'll often see some echo into what's going on. I think it would be reductive and and um, insufficient to say like, oh, he didn't like the president or he didn't, you know, this is a, <laughs> this is a criticism. You didn't of, like Trump, yeah, you know, like yeah. Well, and yeah, like even even some of the things we've talked about, like just to go back to this is low hanging fruit at this point because we've talked about it so much, but like this idea of like nature and our relationship to nature, that's definitely part of it, but it's got to be so much deeper than that, right? It's got to be, there's so much more to this story that I think he's in conversation well, with. Well, and, and ultimately this is a question for David Lowry, you know, so anything we're doing here is just theory. Um, but I can see the courage in the face of death as being a universal, timeless uh, story that I think uh, anyone can appreciate, like uh, trying to find a way to live knowing that you will eventually die and, and, and living in such a way that recognizes the the inevitability of death and yet choosing to be a good person um whatever that means despite that death coming and that does feel modern to me that does feel like a modern question and i like that the main character in gowan is not heroic right like he's someone who's who wants to be great but feels very normal and, and, and flawed and 
um, given to vices. And I think that's something that in the modern world uh, I can definitely uh, empathize with. So so maybe some of that is what, what you know, drew him to this story in this adaptation, my guess. I do want to talk really quickly about the ambiguity of the ending and give you guys a second to just talk about that. Okay. Like this idea, like, do, so after the dream, are we left to think that like he's he's now succeeded and he will like the, the whole off with your head thing is that sort of because I've, I've seen online people sort of go to two ways of it. Uh, one one interpretation is sort of now comma off comma with your head like now off you can go sort of thing. And I, I think I've seen in other translations, other, other languages uh, that this film is presented in. There's like more evidence to that or is it also like a just a joke of like now off with your head like mm. you've completed the task and we're not going to cut your head off or is it now off with your head now i'm going to cut your head off i'm not i'm not sure that it matters um because mm-hmm. i think that i think that the decapitation that's happening is the decapitation of uh of gowan's uh potential to become the king you know it's it's gow it, it, you know whether he physically dies or he's he's surrendering the future that he sees in that flash forward um, it doesn't. It doesn't ultimately matter um, mm-hmm. because he's he's sacrificed something already. He sacrificed the path that he was on. So I think um, uh, I kind of like that it's ambiguous. Um, and 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 I, I guess if you you know if I'm cornered and I have to I have to decide, um, I, you know this is a glass half empty half glass half full. Did Gowan learn his lesson and does he leave the the Green Knight and, and you know go back to Camelot and maybe live happily ever after with Essel and not be a bastard and, you know, steal the baby and sit on the throne? Or does he die? And either way it's maybe better for the world, <laughs> you know, that he's that he's gone that direction. I, I prefer to think that maybe he does leave and he's leave and he's and he's learned his lesson. Um but that's just, you know, uh, I'm in a in a, in a, in a generous mood. So, so my read of this scene is that he has this, this dream of what his life would be were he to flee, were he to give in to cowardice here. And he knows he could go become king. He could go uh, maybe uh, wed some beautiful lady. He could have the baby with Essel, but then not uh, be tied to her. And he sort of is seeing it not as just like a this would be the reward, but like this is what would happen. This would be my life were I to do this. He sees it play out, his alternate life. And ultimately, it leads to war. It leads to the death of his son. And then it leads to him being cornered in this throne room where very particularly there's this image which um, is something that the lady was able to capture in this like early form of uh, photography where it was inverted in the same way that the the movie inverts certain scenes um, and it creates this like impression of like a very particular negative image of him um, and it's behind him on the wall um, and he ultimately is going to die I think in this and he's going to die with shame and he sees all this happen in this moment and then he comes back to the present and he says this is not what I want. So he casts aside the ribbon, this protective uh, ribbon that he, it represents the fallibility of him and the, and his like weakness. And he casts it aside and he finally accepts, I'm going to die here, but it's worth it to me to die here as I am 
instead of live this life of cowardice and shame. And he accepts this. So to me, this reminds me of Abraham in the Bible, right? Like God asks him to, to kill his own son to prove, I'm sure I'm butchering this, but to like prove your, your devotion to me. And he doesn't end up doing it, but he has to commit and be willing to do it before God can like stop him. And, and, and so to me, this is that moment of like, he has to be willing to commit to truly dying at the end. And so we can't, as an audience, be given the answer of whether or not he actually dies, because then that somehow affects the choice. And what's more important here is the choice to accept death as an eventuality, whether or not it occurs or we get something more akin to the poem where he gets a nick and then he's able to sort of live with the mark of, of this, um, which is kind of where I lean. But I think it's open to interpretation, like you said, ambiguous. I, I thought it was genius. Like, I absolutely love the way this movie ends, and I was thinking about it for hours afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I tend to uh, sort of agree. I think that this this vision that we get is this idea of, like, if he gives up on his virtue here, he continues to give up on his virtue for the rest of his life, and, and this leads him down this path that he never wants. And so, yeah, he he chooses to die and then like you said it because it is a game at the end of this he doesn't actually have to die as is my read on it but you know i love that it's left to ambiguity i do think this is a great time for us to compare the book and yeah. the, the poem cast and the film here <laughs> i think we do it quickly i'll, I'll go first if, if you guys are cool with it i think that davy lowry took something that was um sparse in areas and but but very rich very rich poem clearly dated in some ways and again, I really enjoyed the exercise of reading it. I think that I want to seek out more poetry, especially sort of like epic fantasy poetry. Like I, I found it to be really engaging. Um, and obviously the, the seed of the story is very much from that. But David Lowry, to me, like modernized it and updated it in a way that that I wouldn't have thought possible and created a film that I'm going to remember probably forever and, and continue to recommend to people who are looking for something with a lot of layers to dig into. Um and just overall, just what an incredible film. So I'm giving it to the film. Okay, I will go next. And then, uh, Eric, you can you can be the final vote here. Yeah, I don't like to think of it as, as the modernization for me personally, because to me, that almost cheapens it. Um, Lowry is here creating a piece of art that is itself akin to that surrealist painter I talked about. And um, I, I want to, even though we have the argument of recency, and people could say, oh, it's recency bias, I think this is a brilliant piece of art and it's in reaction to the poem. It's inexorably tied to it. It's very difficult to somehow choose a winner between these two, but that's the exercise that we've given ourselves. So uh, yeah, I agree. You know, ultimately I'm going to give it to the movie here. Um, it, it, it was brilliant. Uh, I feel more kinship to someone like David Lowry in the modern world, trying to, to mine the past for something spectacular and I think he was able to achieve it here. And ultimately, like, this is what I want in adaptation. This is one of, I think, the the smartest adaptations I've seen in a long time. Um, and even though I know it won't be for everyone, it was very much for me. Um, and if you know any other poems that have been adapted into movies, let me know, because that's something I kind of want to do more of. Um, so ultimately, I'm going to give it to the movie here with the caveat of, like, I can't blame anybody who wants to give it to the poem, because obviously... You know, it's <laughs> it stood the test of time as one of the most important pieces of written English language there is. Uh, so how can you possibly uh, assail that in any way? So uh, full caveats and everything. But yeah, I'll give it to the movie. 
What about you, Eric? I mean, uh, I got I got to give it to the movie. I mean, this is just a remarkable, a remarkable uh, accomplishment um, from performance. Every every everything on a technical uh, level, every part of this movie is is expertly made. Um, the one thing I'll say, you know, uh, in the in the books or the poems, uh, defense not defense, but to 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 kind of underline its importance. I mean, when you're thinking about this poem, this is a poem that was important enough for Tolkien to translate himself. This was part of his studies. This this informed Lord of the Rings. Oh, for In sure. Fact, you can see you the know, effect of it, this on a lot yeah, of it, modern it, fantasy. Yeah, so 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 this is a seed that 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 it became kind of the most uh important part of our theory and legend and is also directly, you know, created some of the the biggest uh legends of the 20th and 21st century so it's a really big deal as a poem but the, this movie is 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 uh i know i will revisit this movie more often than i will revisit the poem um the poem feels like really rewarding homework um, <laughs> right yeah and the movie feels like uh incredibly satisfying artwork i i think that's a perfect place to leave this uh incredibly satisfying piece of art absolutely um, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. I'm glad I, we are finally able to have you on. Uh, you've 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 been a listener for a while now, and I've yeah, talked to you about this. Yeah, I'm a this. fan. You're, oh, thank I'm a you. fan, guys. Yeah, I've been like, I've been, I've been, I've been listening. I've been, you know, I've been rating. I've been everybody <laughs> rate the podcast. You know, join the Patreon, get engaged. <laughs> I appreciate it. They talk that. about it in every episode. <laughs> uh, you know, I've I've been uh, I. I you know, I, I definitely feel like a like a fan that, that that gets to come on and you know join a couple of guys. You know, I, I haven't physically met James, but uh, I feel like I know you just from the podcast. So uh, thanks. Yeah, I feel like I know you as well from the short conversation. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun. It's fun to kind of kind of feel like you know you guys have been you've been friends through this podcast, especially through the last two years. Yeah, of, uh, it, it's humbling to hear that you know whenever we have been there with people through the last couple of years that have been very harrowing. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, thank you for coming on. I'm glad we were able to get you on for this. What is the name of your story that's going to be coming out in Escape Pod? And uh, how can people find it, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the story is called Merely Players, which is a which is a reference to Shakespeare. Um, and uh, it is going to be running on the Escape Pod podcast. And you can search for Escape Pod on whatever podcast apps that you use to find Ink to Film. Um, and then you can find Escape Pod and you can listen to the episode. It's going to be uh, narrated by uh, an incredible professional narrator. Uh, it's going to be hosted by uh, by an incredible host. I have nothing to do with the production <laughs> of this podcast, uh, but I had everything to do with the writing of it. Um, so it's uh, I. You know, I, I, I'm very, very proud of the story. Uh, I and I, I will make sure that this story and anything else that I ever do, I try to update my personal website. You know, uh, which is Eric. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> Eric uh, www Eric and that's spelled E R I K uh, Grove G R O V E dot com. Um, and I actually have a post up there. I think the their most recent post is. Is these are where all my work is right now, and this is when the podcast is coming out for Escape Pod, and I'll be all over Twitter, which is at Eric Grove, uh, and on my personal website saying, "Listen to Ink to Film and <laughs> check out check out Escape Pod." So uh, Thursday is a big day for me uh, with both of these both of these going live. Very exciting! Congratulations again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, all right, thanks, uh, and uh, happy holidays, Eric, and happy holidays to all of our listeners. 
All right, and if you enjoyed our conversation with Eric Grove about The Green Knight and our discussion of the poem, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Oh, and Spotify now has the option to leave five-star reviews. Um, Although I hear that they're sort of rolling it out in phases. So if you're on Spotify, check your app and see if there's an option to leave a review there. Uh, And if so, we'd love to get five stars from you. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. We have a Council of Inklings where we post polls and some other stuff like that. But we also have a link in the Council of Inklings for our Discord, which has been pretty active recently and it's been a lot of fun. So if you're interested in that and you don't want to join the Council of Inklings, message us on any social media platforms and we'll send it your way. And if you'd like to support the podcast in another way, uh, we would love to have you on our Patreon. We have a lot of bonus content on there. We will be releasing another bonus episode this month. We have done it monthly for the last few years. Uh, We have a lot of stuff on there um, that is exclusive to Patreon. So check that out. Um, And uh, yeah, we would love to have you on there. Patreon.com slash ink to film. And thank you to Russ Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. Thank you for sticking around to the end. We will be back next week for our Wheel of Time uh, finale, where we cover episodes five through eight of the TV series. Super excited to get into those. Um, And then we will follow that up with one more episode in the first week of January, where we will be doing our last looks 2021, looking back at everything we covered this year. Uh, Very excited for that one as well. Always a good time. So make sure to check those out. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.